What's up? Jake Reed here. Today, I'm Ben's guest on the Big Fat Five. What up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. So this episode's going to be a little different. I'm going to start doing a fun, perhaps self-indulgent series where I post a question on the Big Fat Snare Drum Instagram page and make an episode out of your responses. Maybe it'll stick, who knows, but these are conversations I have with my musician friends anyways, so now I'm just recording them. The first question posed was, which records helped define the 70s drum sound? We got a lot of responses and opinions were definitely shared. It was really great, so thank you. And I had to shave down a 500-hour playlist down to a handful of songs. It didn't necessarily come out to five as the title of this podcast suggests, but hey, no one puts baby in a corner. I called up my good buddy and amazing drummer Jake Reed to chat with me about his views on 70s recording techniques, and then we listened to the songs together. This one was fun and certainly looser than most of my conversations, but I discuss everything at the beginning of the conversation, so let's just get into it. Cheers. What does 70s drum sound mean to you? I mean, do you want, like, <laughs> which answer should I give you? <laughs> Cause, like, I mean, hey, man, we, we got to fill up 45 to an hour, man. So give me the long-winded well, answer. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I can easily do that. I'm trying to be more concise. Well, yeah, here's yeah. the thing. Um, if somebody calls me for a session and they go, hey, it's like a 70s thing, then I'm automatic. I know what they mean. Yeah. Most of the time, if they say that, but if we're talking uh, objectively about the '70s, which is an entire decade, it's yeah. ten years, mm-hmm. that's that's what the '70s. Yeah, you know, there's there's a lot of answers to that. You know, like when I did the uh, I did like a YouTube episode about the '70s thing, mm-hmm. and there's so many different sounds from the '70s. You know. There's so many different, and there's so many, like I even, I looked at the poll, like you were talking, you know, on, you know, where everyone chimed in with what they liked. Yeah. The big fast snare drum page. Yeah. Some people were saying like, oh, it's definitely like headhunters, like Herbie Hancock. And, you know, you think of like Harvey Mason playing on some of that stuff or like Mike Clark. Mm -hmm. And that's a sound from one specific Oh, from a studio, like I th- I'm thinking of like Thrust or something. Yeah. Um, up in San Francisco. And that's like a sound. And and the other thing is, we have to remember that there are so many key players from that decade, like Mike Clark, for instance, for that style of music. The microphones don't make a sound, you know, like it's the drummers are the ones that have the touch, you mm-hmm. know. That's why you can tell when it's Steve Gadd. Yep. Within like two hits, you're like, boom, bap, gad, you know, like you, or like Percaro, you know, like that's a different sound also from the seventies. 
uh, a lot of his, you know, a lot of those iconic, like someone mentioned um, the Boss Gags record, you know, yep. like uh, Silk Degrees, you know, with Low Down and Lido mm-hmm. Shuffle on it. Yep. That's a sound. Um, so it's, and then of course someone's going, what about Led Zeppelin? You know, <laughs> like yeah. what about John Bonham? And it's like, okay, well that's also... But to me, it's like whenever I think of, I always think of like John Bonham as like he's in his own little category because, you know, like the things that Zeppelin were influenced by were like old school, like blues records, you know, where it had like the 50s and 60s sort of like jazz sound to it, or it's like the drums were more ambient. They're further back. Like you're not hearing a close mic on Bonham's snare, you know, that's just not. It's not a thing. <laughs> and then you listen to like the Rolling Stones, like all of their huge hits. Like even that yet again is another sound. I wouldn't, and you listen to like, I mean, I could be wrong, but you know, uh, like Charlie Watts he had like the big 40 strand strainers on the bottom of the snare. So you hear a lot of snare sound. Mm, okay. Um, but he's also heavily influenced by jazz drummers. Yeah. I-, I remember listening to, there was like a Steve Gadd interview i can't remember which one it was but they asked him about you know how did you like it was something like how did you develop that sound and he's like well it wasn't really up to me it was the engineers you yeah. know that's the answer drummers don't want to hear but that's the actual answer but that's the truth and yeah um so and, but in a way it's also like well steve gadd has his own touch he has his own identity his sound his sonic identity you know you hear him play now and it's not the same recording techniques as back then but you can still tell it's him I, you just think of those recordings that he played on and it's like that has such a, a thing to it because they're relying it's more of an engineering thing at that point you know it's like the close using more of the close mics or mm-hmm. you know they're in like a tiny little drum booth versus a big sound stage like if you listen to like sinatra recordings from the 50s that's like the entire band the entire orchestra in the same room Mm-hmm. Maybe there's like one mic, like six feet in front of the drums, but that drum, uh, the the drum, you know, if it's like Alvin Stoller or Irv Kotler or somebody playing, like they had to know how to play for that one mic, in addition to their drums bleeding into every other mic in the sound on the soundstage, you know. Yeah. So they had to play a certain way, but it's like that's why when you get to a guy like Steve Gadd or something, where it's like the drums are isolated, they're in a booth, everything's close mic'd. It's, it's like precision took on a whole new level because there's literally like it's like your eardrum is right on each part of the drum kit. Yep. So I think that's what partly was like so mind-blowing about hearing someone like Gad play in the 70s on, you know, like Asia or whatever whatever uh, rec- recording you want to talk about exactly and i know it's even when we were making the question i was i knew as there was going to be a lot of like all over the place answers because it's like just think of it in, in the context of the last 10 years songs that came out in 2012 are nothing like songs that would come out on the radio in 2022 and that's basically what we're asking you know it's funny you really name all the all the drummers that i kind of avoided weirdly in right. this in this list in your YouTube video you go through all of them and then you make fun of yourself because you forget Don Henley um, but <laughs> yeah you go through all like the, the people people reference yeah because um, ultimately I will I'll always say this but it's about the guys playing the drums it just so happens that like 
yeah, the engineering from the 70s. And, or like, you know, you think of Fleetwood Mac, like uh, Dreams or something. It's like everyone thinks of that that Mick Fleetwood drum sound. And it's like, that is a thing. And so when someone says that 70s, like, what's your idea of the 70s? It's like, well, most of the time, that's co- probably what you're talking about that you want in your song because it's such a great sound. Yeah. And it just so happens, for me, I'm... I try to think of things like big picture and it's like with so many people recording in their bedrooms now um, and making music that's like tight and small sounding and Mm -hmm. intimate sounding. It's like no wonder that drum sound is so popular again in its own modernized version of 2022. That's a great way to say that. Yeah. So when someone says, oh, it's like a 70s thing, it's like I immediately know what they're talking about if they're a singer songwriter. Yeah. Um, whereas every once in a while it's like, oh, it's like a seventies thing, but it's like more of a rock and roll feel. So I know that like, oh, maybe it's like a, like a, like a Rolling Stones seventies, or maybe it's like a, like John Lennon solo career (laughs) seven, you know, for, for me, I've talked about this before maybe everyone's different, but for me, I always try to get the drum sound right in the room, like from the source. And, the, and that also has to do with how I'm hitting the drums. So like for some of the 70s stuff, you, you, if you turn the mic pre's up and then hit the drums softer, you get more tone out of the drums um, with less attack from the stick, like natural attack, not like a compressor attack. But yeah. Um, and so that way you get this really fat tone, you know, which is really good for the 70s thing. Yeah. In some instances. Um, even though when you go back and listen to actual recordings from the 70s, it's not it's not as big as you think mm-hmm. sonically. Like, people talk about when the levee breaks all the time, you know. But if you go back and listen to that, there's, like, no low end. Like, it, not taking away from the song or anything, but s- sonically speaking, like, frequency spectrum-wise, there's, like no low end in that song at all even though people think it's like oh it's that bottom like huge yeah you, you know drum sound and it's like well it, it sounds big but not like the way that we think of a big drum sound nowadays mm-hmm. so but for me i always tr- i try to think of okay how loud am i going to be playing like what, what sort of um energy do i need to put into this you know yeah um, so yeah, but sometimes it's gotta be, you gotta hit hard and it, they want rim shots. And so you mm-hmm. gotta turn things down and just hit harder. And that's a thing. <laughs> it's like, I have a snare that kind of is like ready to go for that thing. I have two snares that are always ready to go for that. I should say three snares. There's like three <laughs> snares that I have that are always ready to go for that thing. Mm-hmm. And one's like the super dead thing. Like I just put a towel over it. It's like a wooden uh, it's the one I use in my sample pack, the Super Dead Drum sample pack. I love that sample pack. Actually, I was going to tell you, so I'm on tour with a band called Cannons, and there is a new song that they're working on. Um, they just released their their uh, debut uh, record from Columbia, and a really cool song I'm excited about that's going to be on the next record. Paul used Super Dead Drums, and uh, it sounds so cool, man. So Really? Uh, yeah, he's obsessed with, with your sound. Oh, so. that's super cool. Well, tell him thank you. That's really rad. He didn't even know I'd had you on the podcast. He was we, he was showing me. He's like, yeah, dude, there's a sample pack. Uh, it's a super dead drums. And I was like, oh, it makes me so happy. I've but had yeah. a couple people. There's one. Um, there's a guy I know in town who's a... I went to school with him at USC. And he was like, hey, this film composer I'm working with mentioned, you know... <laughs> 
mentioned he's like doing this uh, cue that has the sample pack called Super Dead Drums, and I was like, well, why don't you just get the that actual guy to play on the song? Yeah, <laughs> hey, buddy. I like, yeah, I was like, wow, that's really cool. So, um, that it's very, I'm grateful for that. And I'm flattered by it. And um, anyway, so I have that snare that's always ready to go, and then there's one that's more of like, it's like a chrome over brass with like a little bit not completely covered that does more of like like more of the tame impala thing yeah a little more crack um, to it a little more crack to it and then i have one that's like a black beauty knockoff like a six and a half um and it does more i think it's more like the like eagles thing you know like one of these nights kind of mm-hmm it's actually Sound. funny. <laughs> so is that, that is one the, of the songs? That's the that first gonna... song. Well, actually, I think I think I'm gonna play. Segway. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm playing uh, Josie as kind of like come into it. Oh, but so people dude. have already listened to Josie. So, but, go ahead. Can I, do you know the story about that? Um, uh, the 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 Vista Light. Yeah. Please tell the story for anyone who hasn't heard it though. Well, I mean, this is like what second or third hand that I saw on like a video of Jim Keltner talking about it. But yeah, speaking but, but of, it is Jim talking about it, so he would know. Yeah, but speaking of Black Beauties and Vistalite drums, which Vistalite, that was my first drum set, mm-hmm. you know, when I was a kid, the concert Tom Vistalite. But um, there's this great video of him talking about he had, you know, and like we think of a Black Beauty, like Ludwig Black Beauty is like the greatest snare drum of all yeah. time. The snare drum of the gods, right? Yeah. To, and they're like really expensive. Like you see them on eBay now going for like two to 3000 bucks or even more. A seventies or yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. And you're just like, okay, like, is it really? So the story is that like Keltner had that drum. He was like, man, I just can't get a sound out of this. Like I just, it's not, I just not feeling it. So he took it down to pro drum in Hollywood. Yep. In Hollywood and did like an even, he, he traded it for a, a Vista light snare. Like whoever Bob Yeager or whoever um, at the time was like, "Are you sure you want to like trade a Black Beauty for this Vistalite snare drum?" Yeah, and he's like, "Yeah," because like he hit it and he he got a sound out of it that it, that pleased his ears. Yeah, he's like, "It gets the job done." I like this. And apparently, it was like the same day. Like he went right up to the studio and they cut Asia. You know, or sorry, they 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 did Josie. Josie's on Asia. On Asia, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was like the same day. The same day. And I think after that, he says, like, and that was the only time I ever used that snare drum. Or it was like, that was the only song I ever used that snare on or something like that. I know. It's just so funny how we can be gearheads and then a story like that. And then it's like a snare sound that's referenced by so many people. And he just said, oh, I hit it. It sounded good. Done. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that's just the thing. I mean, that's a that uh, definite school of thought is like, you don't have to have... I have guys ask me all the time, like, what kind of snare drum should I get? And it's just like, well, I mean, you could get a, like a superphonic. I know everyone says you have to have this kind of snare drum. You have to have this kind of snare drum. And it's like, well, whatever sounds good to you is the kind of snare drum you should have. Like whatever pleases your ears, you know, like play the sound you want to hear, find that sound. So yeah, just test some different ones out. Um, Oh, but I was going to add about Josie because one time I actually was talking to Keltner about doing like doing that song and he Mm -hmm. was saying how he had gone in you know like steely dan's like notorious for uh having tons of different drummers play on each of their tracks and you know just people person after person guitar player after guitar player apparently like when keltner went in there there was like handwriting from every other drummer (laughs) like (laughs) he was like he's he's like he's like yeah i must have been like the seventh drummer or something to like 
play on that. And he, he was saying it was just like this string of like the the sheet music was just strung up like this, you know. God, like on a like on a clothesline or something, and he was like reading it, you know, and. Yeah, was didn't I hear that? What did Steve Gadd um, doing the Asia solo? Wasn't that like the first take or second take? Yeah, yeah exactly. First take, and it's amazing because you hear like it's like flawless, it, and especially if you had heard that when it came out, you would think this is totally flawless. But you know, after you hear it for decades and decades, it's like you you hear like oh, there's like a stick click or whatever, yep. you know. So by it's funny how like our 2022 years, like we hear so many things that are like quantized and yep. perfection and gridded and, um, but man, what an epic, what an epic drum solo that is, right? It's just, I mean, I think it's perfect. It is perfection. Yep. Um, I think whenever I hear old tracks like that and I hear a quote unquote mess up and I'll see if I can word this correctly, it makes me think that the other parts of the song when it sounds so amazing it means those actually were authentically amazing because obviously if they if they would have fixed that to be perfect and it, it isn't really how it sounded they would have fixed that mess up so it's like i actually appreciate the mess ups because then it makes the the good parts seem even better yeah totally i mean they 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 could have just used isotope man and just gotten rid of that <laughs> stick <laughs> just normalize it all and there actually is a mess up in a song that i'll play later i'm not sure if it's too far in the song but it it becomes a hook it's like not, it wasn't done properly, but I look forward to that part of the song. Oh, cool. Um, hey, y'all. I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say. I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely, it's loud, and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the Ocean Patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember, Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his, you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at bigfatsnaredrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, check it out, reach out to me, go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. But let's not, let's just get into it. And so basically, okay. again, experimental episode. So I'm going to play some, some songs of the Instagram posts. Um, people gave me so many. I had to spend so much time sifting through a lot this of them. This could easily then, be like two hours long. <laughs> I know. Well, it's, it was going to be. Um, and so I have like some fun facts that I'll say 
while I'm playing it. And then uh, by all means, if you want to ch chime in and be like, oh, I think they recorded it this way, whatever, let's just kind of talk over it. But I want people to kind of hear a, a, a few songs from the 70s. And there definitely is a sound um, for these tracks, for sure. But they're all just a little bit different. Um, and that's kind of why I want to get ones that are similar enough, but also like, wow, I didn't realize the dead drum sound can be all over the place. Mm -hmm. So Jake already did kind of uh, unveil my first surprise, which is uh, One of These Nights by the Eagles. And so here we go. Mainly because you can hear those toms at the beginning. And kind of like what you said in your video, it's like, it's Don Henley. my random facts is this is the fourth album of the Eagles and uh, it was their first number one record and the album was called one of these nights but that's also the name of the song we're listening to and this album actually saw a dramatic increase in Don Henley on lead vocals and this that's who's singing this song who if you don't know is the drummer of the Eagles so good like listen to this part he's hitting a snare and a tom-tom oh yeah see i would never never heard that and this yeah i love that those little that. random pushes Yeah, this song came out in 1975, so smack dab in the middle. You know how tight the hats sound. Totally. You know. He's just playing the tip right on top of the hi-hat. Yep. It's cool, too, because his verse, his verse beat and his chorus beat, besides a few variations, are the same. He's not, he doesn't go to the ride, he doesn't build it yeah. like in my head, I would. It's pretty tight. Well, it's like in that case, not to talk over this amazing guitar solo, but in that <laughs> case, like when they get to the chorus, the thing that differentiates the verses from the chorus is not the drum beat, it's, it's the sound of the harmonies, you know? Yeah. Because it's only him singing on the verses, and then it gets big on the choruses, so it's like he doesn't have to like say, hey everyone, I'm going to go to the ride symbol to show that it's the chorus or whatever, exactly. you know? And it's kind of disco-y, right? It's not supposed to change that much. Totally. It is the mid-70s. Can we keep listening? Yeah, of course. <laughs> these, har these harmonies right here, man. Of course. God. <laughs> I 
Okay, you can you can fade it. I almost want to release the video just so I can show you mouthing <laughs> along to those high you harmonies. Put it up, man. Put it on <laughs> yeah. YouTube. Okay. So the one thing I will say, only because most of the stuff, I mean, it's not like I know Don Henley or anything, but yeah. I do remember watching, it's called The History of the Eagles. It's like a three-hour documentary. You, have you yep. seen that? Oh, yeah. Where he's talking about like recording, I think it was, I feel like it was like their first album, and Glenn Johns was the engineer. Mm. Okay. At that time, and, and Don Henley was trying, you know, Glenn Johns is saying, no, this is how I mic drums. You know, it's like, the, it's the Glenn Johns mic technique. Yeah. Whatever, three some, mics. Yeah, Nothing close yeah. mic. Nothing yeah. close mic, right? Mm-hmm. And so Don Henley's telling him, like, no, no, no. I want you to, like, mic things close. Like, I, I want a really tight drum sound. And I just remember him saying that in that documentary. And I thought, ah. Oh. Like, so maybe he was, like, that was a sound he wanted that, that he was hearing, so... Yeah, so maybe it's maybe. not just the engineers. <laughs> I mean, for for someone right. to like question Glenn John <laughs> Johns, it's like yeah. And so. now everyone sees after the Get Back documentary how involved he was in the Beatles as well, which I I just didn't know that. I obviously I think of Led Zeppelin and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but I didn't realize how involved he was with them towards the end as well. But you know, you listen uh, even in that documentary. Um, the drums sound really tight. Like you, yeah. Ringo's got a tea towel over the, the snare and, um, the floor tom. I mean, there was like one part, wasn't Glenn John saying like, "Hey, how close is that mic to the floor tom?" or something like that. It was like, oh, really? I didn't catch that. Yeah, there was. I forget which part it was in. But he was like asking about that, and I thought, oh, like, they were definitely conscious of, all that back. Or do you have? He was saying like, do you have the is is the mic. Or do you have the towel over the floor, Tom? It was something like, yeah, they were definitely going for that sound, you know, mm-hmm. and that was in the late sixties. Yeah. So that's definitely, that's gotta be where it came from. It would sure. be interesting to try to do like a historical, uh, you know, timeline of like when, <laughs> totally. when, when was the first super dead, like seventies <laughs> drum sound thing? Like when did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Like what year exactly was it? Because obviously um, Abbey Road was recorded. I mean, that's that's '69, and at that point, they had perfected it. At that point, because that's one of the best sounding records of all time. And I'll fight anyone who disagrees that it's not a great sounding record. Let It Be, which is the one that Get Back is mainly based around, it probably is the most loosely. Uh, it's not my favorite sonically, but it makes sense now because they were like, "We want to hear it in the room." And I'm like, the fact that he got that much bleed out of that out of all that stuff it's like dude hands off to you man my god hats off genius totally genius don't know how i did it all right so uh moving on the next one it is uh from oh by the way the first one was at unkill underscore rick so thank you for that one but um number two is or number two and three are both are both from jason mcgurr of death cab for cutie so the first one he said was i'm still in love with you uh from al green and that is Al Jackson Jr. on this track, but uh, let's just go ahead and play that. A lot more crunchy. Oh yeah. Spending my day. So good. And so this song came out in 1972, so a few years before the Eagles one. 
is Al Green's fifth studio record. And a random fact, it's rated 285 on Rolling Stone's Greatest Albums of All Time, whatever that means to anyone. I love it. Would you say there's a top and bottom snare? Or like, if you were to hear the sound, what would you think that the, uh, the, the, the mic techniques were on this? I'm pretty sure this was very minimal miking. I mean, I, I went to the Stax Museum mm. a few years ago, and I think, you know, their whole recording console, maybe by this time they had more channels, but it was like eight channels at the time. And like oh, the geez. eighth channel, the eighth channel was dedicated to reverb. Okay, so seven channels, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to say, God, I remember, maybe I'm thinking of the wrong, but I feel like there's like a mic sort of between the hi-hat, snare, and kick drum. Like there's one mic there, and then there's like one on the bass drum. Okay, so that gets then, a little bit of the attack from the bass drum plus the under snare. I think they used to put like, a, they would put like a ribbon mic there. I mean, I, could, oh. I mean, you could look it up and find out. Yeah. That's the problem with all this stuff is like, I wasn't there. I don't know what they were doing. But yeah. to me, it's like, I just get inspired by the sound. 100%. And then, and then it's like, what can I do to try to achieve that sort of sound? Well, and when I'm, am, I, am, am I correct in, in saying that like, you can tell the preamp's a little driven in this? Because there's a little bit of that crunch in there. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure they were tube pre's. You know, yeah. they're tube preamps. So yeah, you kind of overdrive them a little bit. And that's part of like why you get these plugins, like the radiator plugin, yeah, or like decapitator, or like the 610 UAD, like 610. That's the whole point of those is to try to infuse some of that analog goodness into a digital recording. Sure. That's why we have those now, you know. And on this but record, uh, Howard Grimes and Charles Hodges were also on the record, but this song is. Uh, as far as I know, with my research, is Al Jackson Jr. I'm just looking it up again right now. And yeah, that's what I thought. And you know, that snare sound, you know, if you go to the Stax Museum, it's like they have his Ludwig snare there. Mm. And then like there's a wallet on the snare, you know, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what he did. Um, but here's what it says. And this is from Drum Magazine. I'm just reading it right now. Uh... Typically, they would set up with a Neumann KM84 pointed at the snare about 5 to 8 inches away. The rest of the kit would be captured on U87s or U67s. The bass drum might have an RE20 on it. Okay. Um, or on occasion, either the snare or bass drum might have an RE15 or Sure 545. So that's... It was very minimal. Yeah. You know? But a lot of... Again, if you listen to it, he's not really hitting that hard. No. You know, on that song, you know. I, really on any of them you know you listen to any of that Al Green stuff like Let's Stay Together or Love and Happiness he's not really maybe on Love and Happiness he's hitting a little harder um, but you can hear like even like on on that song like on like beat two he's like hitting a tom or maybe that's a percussionist hitting a, a conga he's, or something he's going back and forth it sounds like yeah but sometimes it's like that's part of why at least in my mind that's why we think there's like a deep snare sound in the 70s. You know, Aaron Sterling talks about that in his um, first Sound of Sterloid uh, video where he's talking about getting that sound. Mm -hmm. um, like hitting a conga with a mallet, you know. But it's like an, uh, to our ears, all these years later, we think, like, wow, they just, like the snare is tuned so deep. You know, even yeah. listening to one of these nights, it's like, well, on the chorus, he's hitting like a tom-tom with the snare 
And so it yeah. kind of gives it this, ooh, you know. But it's not actually, it's kind of a false sense of low end. Um, yep. But nowadays, we can kind of get that. We can just, you know, with the technology, it's like we get all this extra low end. Yep. Um, so we don't have to hit two drums at once to get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, moving on, let's go to number f- uh, three, which is Spoon by the band Can. And this is also a suggestion by Jason, so that's why I let them both in, because they were two, two very dissimilar. And this was Can's uh, first recorded use of drum machines. And so that's also kind of wanted to, why I wanted to put this in the mix, is because people were starting to have fun with drum machines. I know at drum machines, we think of 80s, but they were doing a lot of Sly and the Family Stone. Was They were doing a lot of fun stuff in the 70s as well. Yeah. So uh, Like in time, you know, Sly yeah. and the Family Stone. Yep, exactly. Fresh, the Fresh album. All right, so here is a uh, here's Spoon by Can. Is that a C78? What is that? I mean I mean, I don't want to like say yes or no either way, but it sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. Or like a Maestro Rhythm King. Um, I don't want to answer that- it, but yeah. sound so cool sounds almost like a reggae record or something so yeah that was from uh the album eggy bomb yassi and that was from 1972 jackie liebzeit is the drummer for can the late jackie liebzeit uh please go check out the jason mcgur episode because he talks about jackie's books he's written and jackie in his uh, later life even released his own form of music notation but yeah i kind of wanted to have that because that's not what you think of when you could think of 70s records uh, yeah. at all. and that's also like early 70s too you know yep so. exactly 
They actually wrote that song for a German TV series called Das Messer. Um, and when they wrote it, the, the director hated it and said, well, I'm not going to pay you. I hate this. But the people that actually commissioned them, they're like, well, it doesn't matter what the director says. We're going to use it anyways. And so they used it, but then they did release it as a single. Huh. But what Amazing. an interesting song. I love it. It kind of has like an Afrobeat vibe too, like a Tony Allen that just with that dun dun. Totally. Dun dun. Yeah, Jackie has a cool way of being very busy, but also but also still groovy. You're like he he definitely yeah. respects the motifs that he's created. Yeah. But all right, next one is uh was recommended by Jeff Zim, aka JZNY. 2LA. I have no idea how to even pronounce that. Disney Tula, but it's Jeff Zim. Um, and it is right down the line from the album City to City by Gary Rafferty, who was the lead singer of the band Steeler's Wheel. And uh, yeah. Stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. Steeler, yeah. Which is a great song. And actually, after that band broke up, Gary could not put out a record legally for three years because there was some legal thing with how they, the, the band broke up. So this is actually the first record he put out as soon as he could. So it came out in 1978. Probably wish he would have been able to put it out in 75. But uh, yeah, the song's called Right Down the Line. And this one's really cool because the snare is so soft but so present in the mix. And mm. this is uh, Henry Spinetti on the drums. But here is Right Down the Line. So good. Double. Long as I got yep. your love, you know that I'll never leave. When I wanted you to share my life, I had no doubt. I like the percussion in the background. And it's been you. It's pant. Listening to the snare, it sounds like the snares are really tight. Like the snare is choked, you know? Like you can almost hear a tone of the top head. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just want to see. Jake was pointing out the piano, by the way, when I said, oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I forget we're not no. going to be on video. It's like the drums don't have to change. Just add more instruments on top of it. <laughs> Turn it 
turn this down. I grew up with you know, with punk rock, and it's like new section, new drum part. That's just like ingrained in my in my my ethos, yeah. and I, I I try and shed it so much. But um, which is, I mean, I, I actually do listen to more of this stuff these these days. So I'm getting better. But when yeah, you think just, about it, like just groove, like us. You know, if you grew up playing in like a garage band that was like a power trio, yeah, it's like there weren't just a bunch of extra musicians in the room like waiting to play a keyboard part yeah so it's like to make the music have the momentum it needs to change feels and you know make like hey here's a contrast section like a chorus or a pre-chorus something it's like you had to do something different on the drums or on your like whatever instrument you were playing you had to change what you were doing to make it sound different it's not like you could just keep playing the same groove and like have a piano part come in and like boom there's the chorus or you know have like 10 extra voices come in like boom that's the that's the sonic uh difference you know <laughs> well the other funny thing is you know speaking of like when we talk about dead sounding drums or like 70s sounds um there's always a thing that happens you know when you the more you start tuning down a snare drum like the less sort of natural attack you're going to get out of the drum right like mm -hmm. you're not going to get as much uh, top end and like smack you know like the, the, the crack from the snare yeah um so sometimes like you have to just overdub like if you want that snare sound and it's nice and low and like punches you right in the chest sometimes i'll just like overdub something on top of it that's just like high end mm -hmm. you know that just makes it have that that will artificially give it a, a smack of some kind you know that yeah. that's why you listen to like p-funk or something it's like there's like hand claps you know like the, or like earth wind and fire it's like the loudest thing in the mix is like the hand claps and that's the backbeat <laughs> yeah um but that's what makes it feel so good that's what makes it groovy you know so there's always a balance of finding uh the low end like the chest punch the like gut punch of a snare but like not giving up the the top end you know, so it's always, uh, you got to find that balance. That's that's one of the challenges with doing this style. Well, and you bring up a good point that maybe some of these players that don't necessarily record as much as you do, that they should be less hard on themselves. Like, dude, I've tried every possible way. I can't get my snare sound to sound like right down the line from Gary Rafferty. You know, it's like, well, like, there's they're probably doing some stuff you didn't know about. So, like, they didn't get that snare sound in one hit, you know, so... Well, and the other thing is back in, you have to remember, back in those days when record companies had giant budgets, you know, there's like tons of stories of like, oh, they, you know, they spent three weeks getting that snare sound. Yep. You know, it's like we have three hours to get the whole drum take, you know, or whatever it is. Yep. Um, so we got to be, got to take it easy on ourselves here. Not <laughs> yeah. to say an Eagles... That was a pun. In a, in a sense, <laughs> Take it easy, okay? Um, uh, but uh, couldn't yeah, resist. So I, Sorry. I had I had never um, heard honestly of Henry Spinetti, but his his resume includes George Harrison, Paul McCartney, Bob Dylan, um, Roger Chapman, Pete Townsend, Bill Wyman. I mean, this guy played with so many people, and Amazing. I believe he's still around. And Henry Spinetti just holding it down. That's not easy to do, like. I have, you know, being able to play that simple and just play the right thing for the song that it's, it's vastly underrated these days. Like it's so hard to do that and like really sound good, you know? 
play simple and play the right thing for the song. You think of like, you know, listen to like uh, like James Taylor, like Russ Kunkel playing on those James Taylor records. It's the same thing, man. It's just like playing the simplest thing and then every once in a while throwing something in. Yeah, you're like, whoa, that whoa, just, whoa. It just blows your mind. You're like, what? <laughs> what was that? It's and not easy to do. In my like romantic head, I'm like, if I were to ever ask them, like, what was going through your head? They're just like, I just didn't overthink it. Like, what are Don't you doing? Think. Don't think, you know, if and you that's ever just play, like, yes. If you ever, my, I used to study with this uh, great drummer, John Von Olin, when I was in Cincinnati, and he used to say, if you ever play, think of playing something, don't. <laughs> <laughs> that's a t-shirt. That should be on jakereed.com. Yeah. I actually, I did, I don't know when this podcast is coming out, but I did a video. Wednesday. It's, <laughs> it's coming, coming out on out. Wednesday? Oh, yeah. Well, I, well, on Monday, I have a YouTube video. So when everyone hears this, it will have already been out where Sean Hurley and I are talking about this very thing. And we talk a lot about... It's almost like we about, planned this. It's, we talk a lot about not thinking and just, you know, staying in the moment, um, not overthinking things. But there's a whole art... And, you know, the whole thing is, like, there are non-musicians listening to this stuff. <laughs> so it needs yeah. to be... It needs to sound simple and, you know, it's it's not easy to do. It needs to sound good, though. But I will say, speaking of uh, simple versus complex and everything, one really cool thing about listening to, like, that song, did you hear those changes in there? Those, like, they're playing some changes, man. Like, there's some harmonic motion going on. It's yeah. not just, like, the same four chords that you hear these, like, on a lot of songs nowadays. It's It's really cool to hear that. Yeah, I love. I don't want to be a get off my lawn thing, but like I'm not. I'm old... trying not to be either. There's tons of great stuff nowadays too, but just li- like I, hearing I, that, I was like, "Whoa, that's cool." Well, and then you you go back to like those like like Toto records and stuff. They could make these pop hits that were so complicated musically, but they're so deceiving. You're just like, "Oh, it just makes sense. It's so melodic. It's so pretty, but there's a lot going on." It's amazing. All right. Well, to steer us back to the old age, um, let's go to, to Gotta Get Up. Yeah, back to the 70s. Uh, Gotta Get Up by uh, Harry Nilsson came out in 71. So in no way am I coming going in order, but this is one of my favorite drummers of all time. So good. Uh, Jim Gordon. And he's just killing this track. And this was Mark Cobb, a.k.a. Question Mark Cobb online for this suggestion. But yeah, let's just play a little bit of Gotta Get Up. So the first track on the record, by the way. Such a tight snare. So good. Such a great sound. Oh, yeah. 
is so dead. So dead. Does Tom sound big? Yeah. Reminds me more of Ringo. Yep. He's like the Harry Nelson's like the West Coast uh, Beatles. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's very very circusy, very theatrical. So good. That so th- those roles he's doing on a dead snare are really hard to do. Totally, Jim Gordon, man. Woo! I think he played. I feel like he played Camcos a lot. If I yeah, remember correctly, could be making that completely up, but I don't think I am. <laughs> One random fact about that. So in 2019, Gotta Get Up was uh, featured as the reset song for a series called Russian Doll. Whenever the uh, protagonist would, whenever she dies and returns to the same location, which is a bathroom on her 36th birthday, they always played Gotta Get Up as kind of like the realization that she's back to square one, kind of like Groundhog Day. But uh, yeah, so all right. So that again, that came out in 71. So let's, let's go. We have two more. And the next one is... A song uh, that everyone knows, I would assume. It's called Fly Like an Eagle uh, from the album of the same name by Steve Miller Band. And the reason why I picked this is because the toms are very prevalent. And uh, this is Gary Malaber or Malaber? Malaber? I'll go Malaber on drums. And there is a fun random side story for this one, but let's just play the first little bit of this song. Classic. That snare's more cracking than you think, you know. Time keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. It's like a thinner tone, you know. It's like a flat tone. But see, the little ride thing he was doing in that first chorus, I don't want to say he messes up, but he kind of pushes it a little bit in the second chorus, oh. the, the ride. Wait, can you back I, it up? Yeah, can you back it? Can I hear it again? Oh, he hasn't done it yet. He does oh. it in the second chorus. Oh, okay, okay. You'll, you, you'll, you'll, you'll hear it. Right there. Oh, he's like, oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I'll do it one more time. I love it. Might have done it too far, but yeah. You feel yeah, yeah. I never noticed that before. And I look forward to it every time. I mean it just goes to show, man. A good song is a good song. But I did want to play uh, Fly Like an Eagle. There was a song that, that Steve Miller put out a few years before that uh, called My Dark Hour. And it basically is, and he admits it, it's the Fly Like an Eagle guitar part. I just want to oh. play that real, real quick. It's, in, it's insane. And I it's actually a song that. that features Paul McCartney. But this song oh, wow. came out 
years before Fly Like an Eagle. Love it. You hear the mics just breaking up on those drums, too. Right, so the next one, and this is kind of, we kind of slowly went into the more brighter away from the, what you'd assume 70s is. So this is Spectrum by Billy Cobham. Oh, yeah. And so let's just, uh, again, very different sound than what we heard at the beginning, which was one of these nights. This is Billy's first solo album. Yeah, so good. 1973, by the way, from the album of the same name, Spectrum. Those sound like concert toms. Chinese symbol. Exactly. And speaking of uh, of stick clicks, like you were talking about with Steve Gadd, I mean, there's a lot of stick clicks on this record, and uh, I, I I looked it up. This was recorded at Electric Lady Studios, and I guess a lot of these were first or second takes. I love it. I'm trying to see if I can find a picture of like his actual kit from this session. I wonder if they are concert toms. Hard to tell. By the way, this is Garrett McIntyre, aka More More Cowbell Six Six Six. It's the guy who suggested this one. Seven, baby. You can hear like when he like lays into the snare right there, how it kind of breaks up the mic freeze a little bit. It just distorts a little bit. It's great. Yeah. Hey, speaking of spectrum though, can can you play quadrant four real quick? Yeah, of course. Does that remind you of any other drum beat, like maybe from the 80s? 
Yeah, it's funny. I just, oh my God, that's haunting me. I just had a whole freaking like soapbox thing last last episode about how much I hate the sound for Hopper Teacher. <laughs> I like the song. I was just like, it was with Blair Sinton. He put me oh, in my place and I appreciated it. <laughs> a mutual But that's friend. like, that was the inspiration. Quadrant four was the inspiration for the drum beat on Hot for Teacher. Pretty cool. Anyway, that's I just thought of that from Spectrum as well because totally everything influences the next thing. You know, it's like yep. it's all related. Well, Jake, um, I will not take up any more of your time, and I, I appreciate you uh, being here on this experimental episode because, like I said, I'm on tour, and sometimes things just you know I'm 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 trying to be innovative with this thing and even though it's called big fat five sometimes i'm going to give you big fat nine random things of uh, songs from the 70s and so i really I appreciate it. your your insight um it's fun to have you please if you guys want go check out when jake was on the episode uh or the podcast earlier with your with your actual big fat five but mm-hmm. uh thank you so much man and i will uh i'll let you go dude but it's always good Super to talk fun. to you man thank you thanks for having me on this was a lot of fun all right man i will talk to you later later I see you and that's the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully all have a chance to sell out one day but you'll be an OG listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for Big Fat Snare Drum and you will find us the show is edited in part using Isotope RX Audio Editor. It's amazing, so go check that out at isotope.com. And thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye!